Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're reading verses 17 to 25 uh, this morning, and we're continuing our series in this letter called Living as God's Household. And as we finish chapter 5, we're looking at Paul's instructions to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus on how they should view and approach church leadership. In particular, how they should approach and view uh, elders in God's spiritual family. Uh, now, I realize that the relevance of this passage, its meaningfulness to you, uh, really depends on the attitude that you have. Uh, if you've come this morning and you're searching for a personal blessing and you're asking, what does this mean for me and how can uh, I get the most out of this, um, then perhaps you might find the sermon a bit dry. But if you're thinking collectively and corporately, if you're thinking, well, what does this mean for us as a church? What can we get out of this? Then I think there's something for us all here to learn, to reflect on, and chew on. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me as your act of worship. Standing shows reverence for God's word as we read and receive it. This morning from 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25, hear now the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So whilst the good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated, and would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we confess that it's only with uh, the work and power and the help of your Holy Spirit that your inspired word would become to us illuminated. Um, help us to make sense of it, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Uh, in this word, there are some tough things, uh, some things that on the surface may not appear relevant to us, but when we think of us as part of the body, as part of the church family, as part of the household, uh, some of these things become very important. And I pray that we would have eager and listening ears, that our hearts would be instructed, our minds would be informed, so that out of this body, this spiritual family, uh, you might have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All throughout 1 Timothy, Paul has been making the case that the church is not just an institution. The church isn't just an organization, uh, but the church is a family. The church is God's household. And just like God's design in a biological family is that fathers and husbands be the leader, so too in God's spiritual family, he has given the leadership responsibility in the church to the elders. Which then means in order for us to be a healthy church, we need to have at least a healthy view of two things. Uh, the first is um, spiritually healthy elders and what that means. Paul has already talked about that in 1 Timothy 3. He gave out the qualifications. He said, you want good elders in the church, healthy elders, this is what they should be like. But the second thing we need to know is to have a healthy view of the elders. And that's important as well, that we're not to view elders too highly, 
nor to view elders too lowly. And that's what Paul is talking about today in 1 Timothy 5. How should we as a church view and understand and relate and approach the elders in a healthy way? So that's our focus this morning. And all we're doing this morning is going verse by verse through this passage, asking along the way that the Spirit might teach us and the Spirit might encourage us. So verse 17, let's begin. Paul begins, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And here we learn the primary function of elders in the church. And what is that? It's to rule the church. Now, when you hear the word rule, you may have a certain reaction. It sounds kind of funny. When I hear rule, I think of kings, I think of queens, I think of absolute monarchies. But Paul didn't have this kind of iron fist approach to authority in mind. In fact, that word he uses here for rule, translated as rule, appears elsewhere as manage or lead. And so, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read this about the elders. For if someone does not manage, know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So rule and manage are the same word, meaning the elders in the church are called to lead or manage or rule the church in the same way that a father manages and leads and rules in his own household. So then we have to think, what does a father do? How does a husband do that? And it involves far more than just making decisions on behalf of the family. For a father to lead his family requires that he protect his family, care for his family, nurture his family. That's what makes a good family leader. Um, knowing some of your stories and some of your experiences, the way you grew up, the way I grew up, many of us can relate to fathers who are uh, particularly good at leading in uh, one aspect of family leadership and maybe not so well in others. More often, uh, fathers uh, provided well. They worked hard to make sure that you have a roof over your head and food on the table and clothes on your back. But they did that well at the expense of maybe not being there for the family emotionally, maybe being uh, relationally withdrawn, distant. Um, perhaps there was a language barrier. And so the advice, the counsel, the wisdom they wanted to give you, they simply couldn't. And so they led in one way well, but failed in others. In the same way then, that leading and managing a family requires more than just decision-making, but nurturing and caring and protecting. So to the elders in the family of God are there to do more than just decision-making. The elders in the church aren't to be the executive types who sit around big tables making business decisions on behalf of the church. No, the elders are called to protect and care and guard and nourish the family, the spiritual family, to protect against false doctrine, to promote unity, to preserve against disunity, to pray for the family, to pray for its members, to care and offer counsel to those in need. That's the calling that all elders in the church are called to a call to rule and manage and lead the household of God. And Paul says, if those elders rule well, they do their task faithfully, he says in verse 17, they are worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? I think double honor here refers to a twofold honor, two kinds of honor. The first honor is, an, is a reverence and respect. Uh, those who are faithful to their calling, faithful to God, should be honored. They shouldn't be disrespected. They shouldn't be disregarded. They should be appreciated. They should be esteemed. The second honor refers to honorarium, which is a financial gift. In other words, elders who fulfill their calling well should be provided for. They should be 
paid. But who specifically? And Paul specifies when he goes on to write, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it's interesting here then that Paul makes a distinction among the elders. There's one class of elders, but he seems to show two orders of elders. So first, all elders are called to rule the church. All elders are called to rule the church. But some elders will give particular attention, particular energy and time to the labor and service of preaching and teaching God's word. And so, yes, those elders are called to rule, but their primary task is the preaching and teaching, which is why our denomination actually has this distinction, one class of elders, but two orders of elders. And they are this, there are teaching elders, which we commonly refer to as pastors. So I am a teaching elder in the church. And then there are the ruling elders, which are commonly referred to just as elders. Now, make no mistake, both pastors and elders are elders. None outrank one another. You wouldn't believe how many times I'm, uh, my, my um, opinions, my suggestions in our session meetings aren't simply just executed and follow. I don't have absolute rule and decision-making authority. We are together elders. And yet Paul is saying that among the elders, there are teaching elders or pastors who are worthy of double honor. Why? Because all of their time goes into the ministry of preaching and teaching. Basically, he's saying it's their full-time job. And throughout church history, Christians have honored pastors in both ways. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the first way is that they are given a certain title. The title is reverend. Reverend comes from the Latin word, the Latin word referring to reverence or respect. Now, pastor is a title referring to what a teaching elder does. He pastors. But reverend is a title referring to what a teaching elder, how they should be viewed and treated with reverence, with respect. Now, let me just say this. The title itself is not the only way to show honor. I'm not saying the Bible says to show honor, so you must call me reverend. You know, most of you either call me Pastor Andrew or P. Andrew or Andrew. Nobody calls me Reverend Andrew. Nobody calls me Reverend Kim. And yet, I don't feel disrespected by you. I feel very respected. I feel very honored because the title, as important as it is, isn't the only way to show that. Now, I will say this, those in the room who do call me Andrew Moksanim, uh, which is Korean for reverend, I, I do feel the double honor coming from you. I do, I do appreciate it. But all kidding aside, uh, the second way Christians have honored their pastor is by paying them for their labors. We often call that as uh, being higher on staff of a church. Now, why does a church do this? The church does it to free the pastor from worldly care and worldly concerns so that he is not constantly boggled with the question of how can I put food on the table and keep a roof over my heads? How can I put, give, uh, uh, make sure my, my kids get new outfits for school or send them to college? The church frees a pastor in giving an honorarium so the pastor is freed from worldly care and concerns. Now, some, for some, that may sound a little strange. Well, they should be a servant of God and they're doing it for God and not money. And Paul, 2,000 years ago, anticipates that objection. And so he goes on to write this in verse 18. For the scripture says, saying, this is not my idea. I didn't have a brilliant idea one day and write on a post and note. This is what the Bible says. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. 
Now, that first statement, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads up the grain, that's from the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4. And the whole point there is that uh, when you were um, treading out the grain, so the ox would step on these grains and it would separate the, the seeds out from the stalk. And it's saying, you shouldn't muzzle an ox because if it's doing all this work, let it eat some of its work. Let it reap some of the rewards. And Paul is saying, how much more should a teaching elder be rewarded for his work? And if, unless someone says, well, that's just the Old Testament, Paul then quotes from the New Testament. The laborer deserves his wages. He's quoting from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. By the way, at this early in church history, the Gospels are being referred to as Scripture. Paul calls the Gospel of Luke Scripture. So he quotes from Jesus, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the context of Luke 10 is this. Jesus is sending the 72 out on mission. And when he sends them out, he says, don't take a knapsack, don't take money, don't take food. Rather, when you go into a house, they should receive you and they should provide for your needs. And his point there, Paul's point in using this is, so too God's laborers called to do his work, they should be given a compensation so that their needs are met. Now, that being said, if you remember in chapter 3, when Paul gives the qualification for elders, this is what he says, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now that verse is very important. And some churches uh, have taken it uh, upon themselves to make sure that this is the case. It's unfortunate, but I've heard churches, I've heard churches say that they intentionally pay their pastor little in order to help the pastor not become a lover of money. Pastor, I'm doing this for you so you don't go greedy. I'm doing this for you because if you stay poor, then you have nothing else but to focus on than God and the church. It's a really ignorant perspective, friends. It ignores the fact that you don't have to be rich to love money. You can be poor and love money. You can be rich and love money. If the church is legitimately worried that the pastor loves money too much, then the issue is not about the salary. If you're worried the pastor loves money too much, the issue is with his character, his heart, and his qualifications. So you shouldn't talk about whether you should lower his salary. You should talk about whether he should be released from the church. I hope that we would have a sober view and understanding of this. A pastor should not be motivated by money. They have the great privilege of serving God. But if the church responsibly and generously provides for him, it helps the pastor keep money out of his heart, and keep the love of money from out of his life. So in summary, all elders are called to manage God's household well. But there are a class of elders, an order of elders, rather, teaching elders or pastors who devote their time and energy to the preaching of God's word. It's their full-time job. So those are elders who rule well. So the question is, well, what if the elder doesn't rule well? Uh, what if he sins? What if he causes others to stumble? What do we do with him? And Paul moves on then in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a really important exhortation that Paul gives. And uh, so often the exhortation uh, comes to us in a prohibition. So we read it negatively, but you actually need to understand what Paul's saying. Basically, he's saying this. Don't admit a charge against an elder by the evidence of only one witness. So don't do that. But you should do admit a charge against an elder on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so don't do this, but you should do this. Meaning, Paul is saying, if a church leader sins and there's evidence of it from other witnesses, 
that should never be swept under the rug. It should never be pretended to be no big deal. And frankly, this has happened way too many times in the church where the sins of Christian leaders have been exposed, revealed, made evident, made clear, become public, their offenses, transgressions, but they've been ignored by those it came to the attention of, overlooked, passed over. And when this happens, it greatly harms the church. It hurts the church. It discourages believers. It disillusions members. It divides churches. And Paul is saying this should never be the case. The responsibility of an elder is not to protect other elders as if they belong to some spiritual fraternal brotherhood, as if they operate on a bro code among the eldership. No, Paul's saying an elder's responsibility is not to protect each other. The elder's responsibility is to protect the family of faith first and foremost. Yet, in order for this to happen, there is a proper manner to handle accusations. The church is not full of Batmans. There is no vigilante justice here. We don't do things our way, the world's way. We do things God's way. And Paul says that's to admit a charge or receive an accusation when it's substantiated by the evidence of more than just one person. And what Paul's doing here, he's just quoting from the Old Testament. Paul's drawing from the Old Testament again and again. Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against the person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, this Old Testament command was given to all of Israel. And Paul's saying that principle applies not just to all people, but to all Christian leaders. And what he's saying here is this, Christian leaders shouldn't be given special treatment. A charge of sin based on the evidence of witnesses, if it's found to be true, if it's come to light, it should be dealt with and discipline should be administered. Well, if the treatment for Christian leaders is the same as all believers, then too, the goal for the Christian leader should be the same as the goal of all believers. What's the goal? that if they're found in sin, they will be led to a broken and contrite heart. That they should repent of their sins against God, as David said, against you and you only have I sinned. And then if necessary, to repent against those they sinned against. But sadly, in a fallen world, that's not always how things turn out. Paul recognizes that. So in verse 20, he writes, as for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul says some will persist in sin, meaning that they won't give up their sin or they won't acknowledge it as sin. They won't be truly repentant. What is true repentance? Repentance is not just turning to Christ, but in turning to Christ, you're turning away from sin. False repentance is, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Saying that with your mouth, but your actions, your attitude saying, well, let me keep on doing this. And Paul says in the case of Discipline, if private discipline hasn't worked, you've talked to them about it, you've approached them, if that doesn't work, the next step is public rebuke. A public rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. It's really interesting here because you got to let the Bible set our expectations. Notice Paul's motivation. A public rebuke, making it known publicly, is not to shame the offender. It's not to punish him publicly. It's not to ostracize him by pinning a scarlet letter on him. The public nature 
of the discipline is so that the congregation might feel the weight and the gravity of sin. This is serious. And double down on striving after holiness and godliness. This is the aim of, aim of public discipline, not to hurt the offender, but to help the church. So many times this is twisted and messed up. Years after I left my home church in Baltimore to move up here to Pennsylvania, uh, the church went through a lot of transitions. A new senior pastor came, new elders were installed. And unfortunately, after some years passed, uh, it came to light that uh, one of the ruling elders had engaged in some financial impropriety with church funds. And when the church found out about it, they demanded a congregational meeting. And the way they uh, went about it was to say the only way this elder can show true repentance is he must come before the church members on the stage and he must kneel and plead for their mercy. This is what they said repentance is. You see, they didn't want discipline according to the Bible. They wanted public shaming and public humiliation. It was clear they weren't interested in what God had in mind. They wanted to see him beat around like a pinata. But the purpose of discipline is not punishment. It's not a sentence administered for personal justice. Discipline is to reclaim the offender and sober their church up to godly living. And Paul wants us to understand how solemn this is. So in verse 21, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's saying, because church discipline is so serious, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. What is he saying? He's saying all of the business done in the human courts of man, in the church courts, all of that is ultimately conducted in the presence of the heavenly court. From heaven, God the Father, God the Son, and the elect angels have their eyes on what's taking place here on earth. And so deal with it seriously. That God is not just concerned with the verdict, he's concerned with the process. And that's why Paul says to Timothy and the church in Ephesus that discipline should be without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay, so what does that mean? Without prejudging means you don't presume someone's guilt just because an accusation was made. Anybody can make an accusation about anybody. You don't presume guilt as a result. Evidence by witnesses must be presented. An investigation must be conducted so that a matter is not simply prejudged. Secondly, doing nothing from partiality means you cannot show favoritism, right? Roman, in Roman law, it was very, very um, often the case, as it is sometimes even in our own court systems, where the powerful and the wealthy were favored. And Paul was saying, if this bleeds into the church, it's going to create a kind of partiality in the church that God hates. And the point here is that no matter who the accused is, nor who the accuser is, the church has a responsibility to hear a fair hearing. That the church can't simply protect somebody because they like them and not protect somebody because they don't like them. Protect somebody who they think is important and valuable in the church and ignore those who seem to be valueless in the church. I recently heard about a terrible case of abuse by a pastor um, that a friend of mine uh, knew it was against women in the church, and the case was criminal, so it went um, to court where the victims testified. And um, he, my friend shared uh, these heartbreaking words that, that one victim said in court. Uh, he texted this. Uh, she said, why did we have to bring it to a court of law to get justice? 
why didn't anyone in the church believe us? And I heard that, and it was not only heartbreaking, it was haunting. Because it reminds us of the seriousness of the call for the church to rightly handle the sins of church leadership. Because it's not just the verdict that God cares about, it's the process. All of it takes place in the presence of God, not of man's justice, not of man's opinion, but of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So then Paul says, well, this is a big problem in the church when accusations are made, when their sins are found out. And so he tries to offer some preventative measures. So in verse 22, he says, so do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now laying on the hands is ordination. And Paul's saying the church shouldn't be hasty. They shouldn't rush to ordain and install elders. A church should do a thorough examination of elders, not simply in their competency, not simply in their knowledge, but their character, their lives, their relationships. Why? So that we don't take part in their sins. You know, the church can claim ignorance. Oh, I didn't know that. But the church can't claim innocence if we never assess the candidates properly in the first place. We can say, oh yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. And that can be true. But we can be guilty of not asking the right questions. So rather than hurrying to meet a deadline or quickly filling a quota, the church should give itself to honest evaluation of the candidates up for office. Right? You as a congregation may not be up here laying on the hands but it's you as a congregation who votes in the men who will be ordained and installed. And so it's imperative for the church to be prayerful in your evaluation and your consideration so that we don't take part in the sins of others. Friends, we're not electing prom kings or homecoming kings here. It's not a popularity contest. We're voting in elders in God's family. So we must not be hasty. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but you use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And at this point, you're going, was there a PowerPoint error? Why is this in here? It's very confusing. But I think what you need to do is remember it in context. What's the last thing Paul just said in verse 22? Keep yourself pure. Now, most likely the case was that Timothy was seeking purity and kind of leading toward asceticism. Remember we talked about that? A denial of certain things. And most likely Timothy in trying to keep pure was denying alcohol. And Paul here is saying, you're suffering from ailments. You are free in Christian liberty to drink a little wine to help you feel better. Now, please don't take this and go try to argue uh, that it means something more than it means. Um, honestly, the presence of this comment just shows that Paul loved and cared for Timothy as his true child in the faith. And so he's saying, oh, by the way, I don't want your conscience to be bothered here. Please take care of yourself. And then Paul wraps up this section on elders with these two verses, 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, conspicuous means uh, standing out. It means visible. And Paul brings this section to a close by basically saying some people's sins are clear and they're visible for all. Obviously, don't pick them. But there are a lot of other people who are really good about hiding their sins. 
really good about covering up their sins and nobody's going to know about it. And it's only going to be later after you voted them and after you've ordained them. It's only later that it's going to come up. And then he says, on the other hand, some people's good works, they're evident for all to see. And we see them, we experience them. Maybe the good works are towards you. But likewise, there are many people who do good works that are done in secret where only the Father sees. And you won't see what they do. And he says, yeah, at a later time, they will be manifested. They will be brought to the light. But Paul ends on these very sobering words, essentially saying that in the lives of elders, um, there can be a lot seen, but there are going to be many things, good and bad things that we can't know or we won't know simply because we're not God. And if this is true, Paul's being brutally honest about a reality we so often forget we know it's true, we forget it, and then we're surprised when it happens, which is simply this. You know, leadership in Christ's church is not perfect because the leaders God calls are not perfect. Some elders live in sin, and only time will reveal that, and it comes to light. And we shouldn't be surprised that there are sinners in Christ's church. Some people say, well, I'm not surprised there are sinners in Christ's church. I'm, sinner, I'm surprised there are sinners in leadership. Remember what Paul said? 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Even the great apostle Paul, handpicked by Jesus on the road to Damascus to continue and fulfill his mission was imperfect. And so it cannot be a surprise to us that the elders in the church will fail and be imperfect. Now that doesn't mean, oh, that's a reality. And so we need to lower our bar. We need to lower our standard. No, not at all. Paul gives a qualification for elders. In fact, he gives it twice. It's very important, but we're soberly reminded that even the godliest among us are flawed and fallen in sin. It surprises us, it shocks us, and it hurts the church. The reality is in our day and age, because of the news of the most recent pastoral scandals is so um, um, regular, it seems to be occurring so frequently, it bombards us. But here's the thing. I'm convinced we don't live in a time where pastoral scandal is more pervasive. I think we just live in a time where uh, pastoral scandal is more public because of the internet, because of social media. A hundred years ago, you wouldn't have known about what the pastor in the other town did. Or maybe that would have gotten to you, you know, a, a little while later, but you wouldn't have known what happened across the state or across the country. And the unintended consequence of this, of the fact that these things are so frequent and they're so widespread, quickly circulated, is that there's so many people who have seen the failure of church leadership and been discouraged and disillusioned with the church. They see the fall of church leaders and they just want to give up. There's so many people who have been hurt by the church as a result, confused, angry, uncertain. There are some people who, as a result, love Jesus but want nothing to do with the church. There's some people who have abandoned both. The hypocrisy of church leaders has made faith in Christ too distasteful that they don't want either. Maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you struggle with some of this. Maybe you have friends, family, who are also wrestling with this. And the question is, is there anything we can do? Is going to church, is being part of God's household, is that just a dated practice that Christians should give up? Is this a hopeless endeavor? Oh, if I commit to the church, it's just going to end up in heartache. To which the Bible seems to gently urge us saying no. 
And here's why. As important as Christian leadership in the church is, as important as elders in God's family are, they are not ultimate. Only Christ is. The earthly elders, Christian leaders, are not the head of the church. They're mere servants in the household of God. You see, the church is Christ's church. We are his flock. We are his people, his family. We are his. So the church doesn't belong to man. Neither pastor nor elder nor Christian leader, no matter how influential they are or charismatic they are or well-respected or highly platformed. And therefore, the church doesn't derive its identity and isn't defined by what a leader does and his actions and his sins and his scandal. The church is defined solely by Christ and his perfect obedience and his righteousness and his scandal of grace for you and me and saving sinners such as us. And so we as a church must learn that our eyes are not to rest on fallible men, but to rest on Jesus and begin to see the church, not through their actions, but through what Christ has done. For Christ, unlike these fallible men, has never put himself above the church. Rather, he gave up his life for the church, that you and I might be redeemed from out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. You see, friends, we must learn as a growing, healthy church that only Jesus is the perfect pastor and elder and leader. He not only died for our sins, but Jesus rose again from the dead to rule and lead us. Are you familiar with this verse in Acts 5? Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. The gospel gives us this hopeful message. Flawed and finite elders don't determine what the church is because they're not ultimate, only Christ is. And he is our savior, yes indeed, but our leader. And so we cast our eyes not on fallible men, but on Christ, the faithful one. So let me close with this. In a healthy spiritual family, elders are important. They absolutely are important because God declared it to be so and he designed the church in that way. But we must remember two things. First, healthy elders aren't those with big personalities or incredible gifts who exude confidence and charisma and command a stage, draw a crowd, and build a big church. That's not what a healthy elder is. Healthy elders are those who constantly have their eyes and their hearts focused on Christ because they know he is the true leader of the church. They are nothing more than servants. Second, a healthy view of elders isn't some kind of blind loyalty to pastors or Christian leaders as if they stand in the place of God, as if they can do nothing wrong, as if they can wield a kind of authority over your life that cannot be questioned and challenged. No, not at all. A healthy view of leaders is to see them as worthy to follow only to the degree that they follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as they point your eyes away from themselves to Christ, who is the true leader and savior. Because on the final day, when we enter heaven, we're not going to be greeted by our pastor or by our elders or by this leader or that Christian organization. On the final day, we will stand in glory with our eyes transfixed upon Jesus and Christ, who will shine brighter than the sun. And so our eyes should be set on him and on nobody else. Let's pray.